vast is your, how vast is your love? So deep is your how rich is your mercy? That reach out to save. How great is your name? Thank you, Lord. So faithful and how good is your kindness? There's no one like you. Yeah. Oh, come, let us worship Let all creation sing anthem of praise, honor and glory to our God. Come on, lift him high. Come, let us lift him high. Let all the name. is your power so strong is your mouth how fast is your wisdom so pure is your life how high are your thoughts hey so perfect your
Rejoice in your hope. Come on, girl. Rejoice in your hope. How we love your name. The greatest name. Most worthy. The strongest name. Ooh. Come, let us worship. Well, yeah, great to be with you guys and to enjoy the uh, passion and energy of your worship. It was really, really good. Those of you that are online, good to see you. Though you don't know there's been a problem with our cameras, and the glitch in the cameras means that it's reversed, so we can actually see everybody at home. <laughs> so there's some phenomenal pajamas that we're looking at today, and uh, good to have you. Now, I'm only kidding. It's great that every, everybody's here, however they come. Listen, um, <clears throat> Pastor Mark mentioned... A kind of metaphor of a well and us re-digging things so many times. And I, and I sat next to his wife, Pastor Kathy, and said, I remember when I <clears throat> first came to London, KT was redeveloping its basement. And they were pulling all the junk out to set Do you remember? Am I right? And they pulled out a whole lot of old crutches and wheelchairs because there'd been healing ministry here, and people didn't need them to go home with, so they left them here. And, um, and, I, and I thought, while I'm sitting, I'm thinking, God, would you, would you open that well again? Why don't you do that? So when I'm hearing that there are 300 people showing up for prayer, and, and you do, I, I know that the intercession and the prayer will be the key to that happening. Amen. That breakthrough for healing. I mean, it, it's, it's just incredible. I want to see that happen. Yeah. Uh, there, there's got to be some centers around London, some oasis points that just release something. And there, there is something in the history of KT of a healing grace 
a remarkable season. You know the stories, as you will, from Elam history of the Jeffries brothers. But, but there's something very real, and I, I want to see that. I don't know how it got plugged up. I don't know how it got moved away. I don't know what happened. But the full agenda of God for that is not done. It's not done. So, uh, yeah, keep praying. Let's see what God will do. Really excited about the baptism, and I just say this before I get into anything I share this morning. Baptism has to be revisited for us. You know, in our churches, we talk about it, and it's almost, it slips into kind of like a, you know, early discipleship training stuff. But baptism for the Christian is like a coin with two sides. It's water baptism, but it's baptism in the Spirit. And I don't think we understand fully some of the things that should happen when people are getting baptized. I went back to the discipleship manuals, one called the Didache, one called the Apostolic Traditions, of the early church fathers, just the generation kind of that were following the apostolic leaders that Jesus released. And their commitment to early discipleship was this. They, they encouraged baptismal candidates to fast before they came for baptism, at least one or two days. Because they knew that those people had been dragged through all kind of pagan, occult rituals, uh, in their non-Christian days. And they would be bringing into church a whole lot of shadow on their life that needed to be rinsed from their life. They needed to be delivered. They prayed over them. It specifically says they prayed over them prayers of exorcism so that whatever spiritual shadow was on those baptismal candidates was broken. They understood what a baptism... Well, that's part of the five steps that you really... If you really want to make a good start. If you haven't had these five things happen, you haven't got started. Repentance from dead works. Faith towards God. Yes? You had a water baptism, spirit baptism, and joining church. Not attending service, joining church. You know when you join church, when nobody has to call you for prayer meetings. In Acts chapter 2, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. It wasn't that the apostles kept calling, are you coming? You're going to be in a small group. You're at church on Sunday. Will we see you in the evening meeting? No, it didn't. It says, they devoted themselves. It's a healthy church. But in water baptism... They understood something from the baptism in the Old Testament. You know, when the children of Israel, two and a half million of them, came through the Red Sea, Scripture records that as a baptism, probably the biggest baptismal service ever. And Miriam spontaneously jumped up. You would have been involved in that, John. In in an act of praise and worship. Thank you, God, that we got through the Red Sea. But verse 2 of her song said, But the rider and the horses from Egypt did not. And she knew that the powers that were chasing them down to bring them back into slavery and incarceration got broken off of their life in that act of baptism. I want you to understand, if you train your candidates well, that water baptism is symbolic, of course it is, a wash, a death and a burial and a resurrection, but it can be an instrument of deliverance. And we want to see people, people come into our church and they get prayed over and they get delivered, but I think sometimes it's too late. We should be getting that stuff off of their life as early as possible. Water baptism cuts you off from your history. But spirit baptism takes you into your destiny. And we need both. We've got to get this right. So make sure that you're properly baptized in water with all the implications of being set free and delivered. And make sure you're fully baptized in the Holy Spirit. There is a biblical evidence. I'm not sure (laughs) I'm speaking on this platform, but in my church... Yeah, we, we consider the essential biblical evidence to be speaking in tongues. We, we really do. Because I want you to be sure that you've had the experience that Jesus said you're to wait for and not go involved in any ministry until you're endued with power from on high. And he breathed on those disciples. A kind, of a, a kind of a preparation moment one night. He breathed on them as a puff. <laughs> Receive Holy Spirit. 
That's what Jesus did. But you know Jesus. He says, I only do what I see the Father doing. So if he knew the Father was going to go, breathe on him. He kind of said, get ready. And when you hear this, receive Holy Spirit, you know the day has come. Well, when Jesus did it, it sounded like a puff. When the Father did it, there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. There was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. They could not go into ministry unless that was the case. You need to know that you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Don't play with that. You need to be saturated, endued, and filled with power from on high because it's more than just getting charismatic gifts. Baptism in the Holy Spirit, when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, it's the word for a martyr, for somebody that's willing to die. So being filled with the Holy Spirit gives you the power to, to live for Jesus, but also to die for him. And that's why he stayed around for 40 days to show them unassailable evidence that he was alive from the dead because of that word martyr. He wanted them to know you don't have to be afraid of the places that I'm going to send you because you're going to face antagonism, some of whom you will lose your lives. But I want you to know that even if they kill you, you'll rise again. See, here I am. So you need to be convinced of my resurrection so that you'll be convinced of yours. We've got to get back to laying good foundations for our Christian believers. Christian foundations and Christian beginnings have become a big issue in my mind now. Since we're coming back from pandemic time and we're resetting things in the church, let's make sure people have got good foundations. Because if they haven't got good foundations, they can't develop well as disciples. That's why we've got a lot of people in church who are growing old, Pastor Mark, but they are not growing up. That's our problem. Because the foundations are laid. And you can't build a second floor in a building that hasn't got good foundations. Can't take them any higher. Well, God bless you. I'm here today to, um, to say, according to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, above all else, you must guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. The writer was actually thinking that when I talk about your heart issues, and I tell you to do it above all else, it means you've got to give it priority. You've got to know that life flows from inside you. And if that gets clogged up and polluted and destroyed or dries up, you suffer. Your health has to do with the internal quality and renewal of your own heart before God. You've got to get this right. And we're coming back from all the pandemic pressures and difficulties, making sure that the church is in good shape, in good health. And in many ways, we're not. In many ways, we're not. I was a guest speaker at a conference last summer. They got a little bit offended at me because I told them that the church is backslidden. I did. I think it wasn't just my own opinion. Surveys have been done by even the Bible Society that discovered that there were some denominations and they said the members in our denomination do not read scripture after they leave a Sunday service. Over 60% of them said we don't read scripture, we don't study scripture. How can you grow in a faith that you're ignorant of? The biblical illiteracy in our day is making the church prone to deception. Make sure you understand what you believe and why you believe it. And you're not dependent on just your pastor doing great Bible studies. Put a little bit of investment in your own study. Devote yourself and understand what you believe and why you believe it. I told them that there's another problem with our culture. We're becoming an echo of culture and not an explanation of scripture. We don't even know. We talk compassionately about transsexual issues or LGBTQ plus agenda. We don't know what we're talking about. Our culture tells us there's 75 genders that you can choose from. 
because maybe you were assigned the wrong one at birth. Maybe when you came out into the labor ward, the doctors went around and went, so uh, what do we call this one? Boy, girl, what? Okay, let's take a vote. There's 10 of us. Who says boy? Three. Seven says girl. Okay, it's a girl. So you were assigned that. That sounds ridiculous. I was assigned that. It just, look, I don't want to get you guys into trouble. Somebody can see this tape and go, Kaiserton Temple had a, a terrible speaker on their platform. All I'm saying is that when God made us, it was male and female. And for the Christians, it's very clear where the gender issues are. I don't want us to become an echo of culture. I want us to become an explanation of scripture. That's one of our difficulties. That's one of our difficulties. We have a problem with that. And so our churches are drifting. Like it says in the book of Hebrews, they drift. It's an interesting word. If you use it about a ring that's slightly too big for your finger, before you know it, you're parted with something very precious and you didn't even know. If you use it about a boat that's not moored to the banks of the river, it can drift with any current and before you know it, it ends out, out, out in the ocean. Unhooked to anything, unanchored to anything. If you use it about a kitchen vessel that's got a slight leak in it, it looks full at the beginning of the week, but all of its liquid hemorrhages out. Before you know it, it's more dry than it should be. And he used that term and said, you believers, if you don't stay focused in faith, even in a hostile environment, you can drift. You can drift. So we've got to get churches back to a place of health, where their understanding of scripture is clear, where their understanding of morality is clear, where their commitment to the purposes of God are clear and we're not drifting. We've got stable people who, even if they live in a hostile environment, and according to the book of Hebrews, it was hostile. And it's not going to get any better for you. Now, let's let's, let's just be clear. If you are prepared to say Jesus is a way to God, everybody in this culture is going to applaud and affirm you. Because that's what pluralism does. It says everybody's right. We all live together in this social context and everybody's opinion is okay. If you say Jesus is the way, that's all you have to say. He's not a way. He is the way. They'll tell you you're bigoted, small-minded, and intolerant. We're the ones who are tolerant, they say, in pluralism. No, pluralism is only tolerant of pluralists. If you happen not to be a pluralist, and you happen to say there is one way that leads to God as Father, you're going to find yourself confronting a lot of angst and a lot of pressure. And will you have the roots to keep going? As it heats up, will you be a Christian who can keep standing? I don't know why Jesus said when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? But he did say it. He did say it. Maybe it's hyperbole because he's saying, I just want you guys to keep going. And I pray when I come back, I find you doing well. That's what he's saying. My prayer is too. When he comes back, he finds us doing well. But we're getting knocked out. We're getting messed up. We're getting hurt. And we find ourselves getting in confusions over money and prosperity. Lots of people get distracted along this route. We find ourselves destroyed by corrupt sexual behavior. The amount of times I've talked to Christians have got themselves embroiled in all kinds of adulterous behavior, or pornography and sexual proclivities of every kind. I mean, honestly, it's, we just got to talk honestly about this stuff and help people get that mess out of their life. It's there. Or it's just ambition. People have got a desire to climb to the top, be in the spotlight, have the microphone, be the bee's knees. And the desire for that is becoming ordinate and they absolutely strangle themselves trying to be the best, trying to be number one. Their hearts are clouded and their heads are swollen. What happened to humility? What happened to that? 
Well, anyway, we've got those kind of issues, and they are probably well known. Those, kind of, those three I just mentioned occur with uncanny regularity in our churches. But there are two other things that can destroy you and destroy the health of the church. Number one is disappointment. The scriptures are clear. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. If you live with a hope that's died, without expectation and desire for the future, without something to look forward to, it can kill you. Hope deferred, delayed, derailed can make you feel terrible. When you lose hope, anything can happen. But the second one that doesn't get talked about as much as it should is this. That's what we're talking about today. It's offense. I want to talk about the power of offense. How do you handle it when somebody says something to you or does something to you that you go, that has just worked in my last nerve. I'm out of here. And some people say, I'm out of here. Not just I'm leaving the church. They leave faith. They walk away from Jesus. I don't want to be a part of these Christian people. I'm this and that, that and this. And oh my goodness, man. It's incredible. The ugliness they pour out of their mouth is like a green vomit. Yeah. The theatrical picture I just painted was intentional. That's the garbage I've heard. Coming from people who were hurt and couldn't get over it. If you're sitting here in church today, my prayer is somehow you get over it because if you can't it's disastrous turning your bibles with me would you to second samuel chapter 16 verse 23 i'm going to talk to you today about a, an advisor that was in the courts of king david his name is ahithophel in the hebrew it's pronounced ahithophel but i didn't want to spit on anybody in the front row so ahithophel would do <laughs> it's true so ahithophel was david's advisor <clears throat> and there's a couple of scriptures i want to read about him that i'm going to fill in the background story promise me you'll do this You'll go home and look at the stories in the scriptures and read his story from cover to cover. Try and find it out. I'm going to give you the highlights because that's how time works for us today. So in chapter 16, verse 23, it says this. Absalom followed Ahithophel's advice just as David had done. For every word Ahithophel spoke seemed as wise as though it came directly from the mouth of God. Flip over to chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 23 again. It says, meanwhile, Ahithophel was publicly disgraced when Absalom refused his advice. So he saddled his donkey, went to his hometown, set his affairs in order, and hanged himself. He died there, and he was buried beside his father. Mm. Mm. I read that and thought, what a story. You go from having a reputation that says, when you give counsel and advice to anybody, it's so anointed, we feel as if God has spoken to us when you speak. That's, that's quite a reputation I have at a national level over a significant period of years. In fact, in his position, somebody <coughs> in Ahithophel's role would be called the king's friend. That advisor would be called the king's friend. In the book of Chronicles, that's how they're referred to. So you go from having that access to the king, that access to power, In fact, it wasn't just one administration he served. He gave advice to David. He gave advice to Absalom when Absalom was trying to take over the kingdom. So he advised two political administrations. Very, very powerful. But the second text tells us that one day, on the basis of a rejection of his counsel, and God was in that, actually turned that around, he got so offended that he was no longer being received as the voice of wisdom that he went back to his own town and carefully and stealthily planned his own demise, went through it, planned his death, put his business in order, and then hanged himself. 
And I read the story thinking, wow, he'd done this in isolation so no one could see him until they found his dead body. And it was an act that was beyond reversal. Uh, just, it stuck in my mind as I read the story because my own mother took her own life as a result of numerous relationships that just failed with men. She became so broken and so distraught on one occasion that she just went home, overdosed on a bottle of pills, and she never woke up. My, my mum took the pills, but I felt that overdose. I'd wake up in my early 20s dreaming that I, I was going to meet her. I had dreams that I was walking through a shopping mall, and I saw her down the end of the street, and I'd go, Mom! And I'd rush down the road, turn the corner, and then I'd find a janitor sweeping up something. I'd go, did you see a lady from a black lady, African lady? And I'd wake up crying. So she took the pills, but I felt the overdose. Because I realized it was an act beyond reversing. She got so hurt, so broken, so offended at what people did. It broke her life. So I'm saying, so how do you handle that, Doug? Well, I don't handle it because I know what happened to my mom's soul, but I know who's going to take care of her soul. So whatever happens to my mom's eternal destiny is going to be decided by a God who's absolutely merciful, absolutely just, true, wise, and never makes a mistake. So although I, don't make, I know the details, I know that much detail. And that's where I rest my confidence. Yes? Just want to talk to people who have the same challenge as me. and wonder what will happen to that loved one. Well, we know who's going to deal with that loved one, so we trust him to make the best decision. Well, here we have the story of Ahithophel. And I go, how do you go from an amazing reputation to such an awful ruin? From being at the height of everyone's esteem to being in the place where they find you and they have to bury you in a grave next to your father. And everybody's going, so what happened here? You don't understand those things unless there's a context. There has to be a context that explains the reason why. And I think I discovered it. But, but let me just tell you how important context is. Because every story must have a context or you won't understand it, okay? <clears throat> let me give you an illustration. There was a man in America by the name of Bubba Johnson he was a farmer, had a small holding, not a huge farm, but he would take his products to the market. He had a donkey, had a horse, a little cart, would carry his products with him. And uh, one day while he's going to market, everybody knew him, he did this all the time. He gets to a T-junction, and as he's waiting at the T-junction, a truck is coming down the road faster than it should. The reason for its speed was the drunkenness of the driver. He hit Bubba, knocked his donkey Knocked his horse flying, the cart's up in the air. Bubba ends up on his back in a ditch. Somebody had the presence of mind to call for a police officer, and he came and surveyed the situation. It all ended up in court. And while they're waiting in court for the judge to, you know, run the hearing, they're waiting. The truck driver's there, now sober, with his attorney, and on the other side of the table is Bubba's attorney. But there's no Bubba Johnson. They're wondering what's going on. And suddenly, the court doors open, and they wheel him in. I mean, he's got his leg in plaster, his back in a brace, his arm in a sling, his head wrapped around with bandages, he can hardly see or speak. Soon as he's seen by the attorney who's supporting the driver, he said, Your Honor, can I come to the bench, please? I am seriously upset about what I'm seeing. How could Mr. Johnson come into the court like this? He's actually being theatrical here trying to milk the sympathy of the jury for a verdict in his favour. And I know that's the case. Because when he was interviewed on the day of the accident, the police officer, according to the notes, asked him, how are you doing today, sir? And he replied, I feel just fine. So if that's the case, what's he doing here with all this? 
theater. I'm absolutely incensed. So the judge said, Mr. Johnson, would you please come forward? They pushed him forward. He said, Mr. Johnson, I don't want you grandstanding in my courtroom. But I want to ask you a question. On the day that the accident took place, the police officer asked you if you felt just fine. Is that what you said? He said, Your Honor, that is exactly what I said. But if you give me five minutes, I'll tell you the context. Context. So he gave him five minutes. He said, speak on. He said, well, when that driver hit me, oh, my Lord. And that donkey went one way, my horse went the other, my car, me, I flipped up in the air. He said, I'm laying on my back, and I know the police officer came over, and he was looking at the scene. He went across to my donkey. Both the donkey's back legs were smashed, and one of his eyes was hanging out. So the officer leant over and said, oh, my, oh, my. This critter ain't going to make it. Pulled out his gun. Kapow! Shot the donkey in the head. Then he went across to the horse. The horse's jaw was smashed. All of the ribs on one side were crushed in. He was bleeding profusely. There was no way the animal could survive. The officer shook his head. Mm, this one gone too. Pulled out his gun. Kaboom! Shot the horse. Then he came across to me. <laughs> he leaned over me and he said, sir, how are you doing today? He said, I looked at my donkey with a hole in his head. I looked at the horse with a bullet through his brain. I looked up at the officer with his hand on his gun and I said, I feel just fine. <laughs> Context. Context. What's the context for this story with Ahithophel? Well, there were a couple of pieces of evidence that I discovered in the scriptures, and I urge you to read them when you get home. But there were two things. The first thing I noticed was his connection to David's son, Absalom, when Absalom was in rebellion against his father. Chapter 15, verse 12 says, He, that's Absalom, also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilon, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. I asked myself, why did Ahithophel desert David and go across to his son who's in rebellion and trying to take the kingdom? Why did he do that? He was the king's advisor. Now he's the king's adversary. What's that all about? And then I thought, well, you know, why did he join Absalom? He left David, but he joined Absalom. What, what, what was the connection here? The other thing that's important for me, the second thing, was the kind of counsel he gave. You know, before they said, if you went to, to listen to Ahithophel's counsel, it was like, Hearing the wisdom of God, you feel like you're drinking from a cool mountain stream that just refreshes and blesses you. But when you listen to this counsel, it's like drinking from a septic tank. Really. He says in chapter 16, verse 20 to 22, I want you, Absalom, to go into your father's concubine wives. He's left them in the palace while he's run away. And go in there and spread a canopy on the roof of the house. And go into your father's wives. He didn't mean just go and visit and have a cup of tea. He meant there's going to be an orgy of epic proportions. Sex scandal. Right on the roof of the palace. Would you do that? And then he said, I want you to do the second thing. You know your father's a great military strategist. Chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. He won't be camped where the army are because the soldiers have gone to protect David. He will have camped some way off from the soldiers so that the soldiers get attacked the king's got some strategic time to make an escape. So send out just a small party and they'll scout around and find out where your father's little foxhole is and kill just David. So when David is dead, all of the soldiers who went with him will lose their courage and will come back to you. 
kingdom is yours. So he said, I want you to do two things. I want you to murder somebody, and I want you to initiate a sex scandal. That's the advice of Ahithophel. And I went, why did that happen? Look, friends, both Ahithophel and Absalom had been drawn together through what they had in common. And what they had in common was this. King David had offended them both. And that fueled their hatred for him. Let me tell you what happened. In terms of Absalom's offense, <laughs> it was to do with the rape of his, of his sister, Tamar. You know, David had some, a number of wives, and some of the children were half-brother and sister, and some were full. Absalom and Tamar were full brother and sister. So when her half-brother Amnon raped her, Absalom was distraught. This is my full-blooded sister. And I'm so upset. And the Bible says when, Abs- when Amnon's story was told to David, David was angry. That's all it says. He was angry, but he said and did nothing. And Absalom was going, so that's what you think of my sister. So he'd been waiting for that revenge. He loved his sister. In fact, he called one of his own daughters by the same name, Tamar. And his cousin, Jonadab, heard him speak and said, you know what, I'm going to let you know that this has been Absalom's expressed intention for two years, that he's going to kill his brother Amnon. And he did. He arranged that. Terrible, terrible story. But he said... I'm offended because David should have done something about it. And that's why when he stood at the gates of the city and seduced those men's hearts to join him in a rebellion, he said things like this. If I was in charge and any of you guys had a problem, I would sort it. I'd fix it. Because he was thinking, in my own house when we had a problem, my old man did nothing. So if you're in power and you don't use your power to do things right, you don't deserve the power. Find yourself out of the palace and out of the country. We don't need you. That's how you're going to behave, Dad. We don't need you. That's what about being offended, right? What about Ahithophel's offense? Well, in 2 Samuel 23, there's a list of David's mighty men. I mean, these are the guys who are the creme de la creme of his military Operations. They're powerful guys. The stories of their testimonies of how they would fight and defend the king and the country. Incredible. And in that list of 30 names, there's two key names. One is Eliam in verse 34, and the other in 23 39, it's a guy called Uriah the Hittite. Now, those names should be a little familiar to you if you've ever read the story contained in um, the book of Samuel, in chapter 11, here, verse 3. Because those two are mentioned. One of them is the father of a lady called Bathsheba. You've heard of her name, right? David and Bathsheba, yeah, the lady that he seduced and had an affair with. But Eliam was her father. And Uriah the Hittite was her husband. So when David was on the roof and he saw this naked lady taking a bath, he asked his staff, I want to send a drifter's song. To that lady. You heard of the drifters, right? They had a song years ago. It went, come on over to my place. David sent that message to Bathsheba. Come on over to my place. Not many people can resist when the king or the queen says, I need to see you. It's powerful. But the the staff tried to help David. They said, oh, we know who you mean. We know the lady you're referring to. Do, Do you mean Bathsheba, whose father's name is Eliam? Eliam. Eliam. They're trying to say, David, 
He's one of your mighty men. Don't go there. Oh, and her husband is Uriah. One of your mighty men. They were sending David a hint the size of Texas. Please don't go this route. You're going to create a major problem calling this lady to your house and to your bedroom, sir. Don't do this. And you need to hear this part, friends. Eliam is mentioned in verse 34 of chapter 23 as being the son of Ahithophel, David's advisor, which means Bathsheba was Ahithophel's granddaughter. Now do you understand why he got mad with David? Hmm? You got it? Now you understand why he was upset. And it was something that affected the whole family. I remember it took a year for David's conscience to come alive about what he did. Got her husband killed, got her impregnated. It took him, it took him a year to wake up to what he did. And one of the things that helped him was a story from a prophet who came into the courts. His name was Daniel, and he came and he spoke to David, Nathan. And he said to David, I've got a story for you today, O king. He said, yeah, tell me what it is. So David's sitting on the throne with his robe and listening for a prophetic word. And he says, no, there's a guy who is a very rich man, wealthy. He's got flocks and herds. And, and uh, he decided he had some friends come from out of town, and he wanted to give them a lovely meal and a barbecue. So he went to his neighbor, poor man next door. And he only had one little lamb in his house. <laughs> and uh, it was like a pet. Sat with his kids around the table. They gave a little tidbits and fed it. It was plump and fluffy and lovely. And he said, that's the one we want. That little plump lamb is the one we're going to barbecue tonight. Can you imagine how the kids felt while he's dragging that lamb out of the flock and out of the field? They're going, please, daddy, don't let him take her. Daddy. Because that incident is going to affect everybody in the family. David goes, man, we got people like that in my kingdom. Cruel, heartless, ugly. What's the guy's Facebook page, man? Do you have a pager number for him? Does anybody know his mobile number? Let's get this joker in here. And the prophet said, well, to be honest, he's already here, sir. It's you. He did it so smartly because although David's wearing the throne and sitting on the throne and wearing the king's robes, Underneath all those garments, he's still a shepherd boy, right? Loves a shepherd story. And he went, it's me. He said, yeah, I'm going to help you with this, sir. The lamb's name is Bathsheba. And what you did to her and her family has displeased God. Wow. Wow. Now you know the whole family gets affected. So if we had the chance today, which we don't, to bring Ahithophel back from the grave and have him stand on this platform and speak to you. We could ask him some questions and say, listen, why were you so offended? You joined Absalom in that angry moment. You told him, I want you to kill your father. I want you to create a sex scandal. And in fact, he said to him, if you create this sex scandal, you will offend your father beyond all hope of reconciliation. One modern translation says, you'll create such a stink it will get into his nostrils. You do this, you're really going to get into your father's face. If you're angry with your father now, Absalom, I'm telling you how you can really stick it to him, man. So if we brought him in and said, Hitherful, you really passed on some ugly counsel. You really got ticked off, man. What happened? I think he would tell us this. Number one, my service for David had been abused. 
I put myself out to help David. For hours. I walked up and down and prayed for him. I gave him counsel. I supported him. I encouraged him. And he repaid me by seducing my granddaughter. You think that's easy to take on? Somebody violates your family and you've been trying to help that very person. And they turn around and do something like that to you. What kind of thanks is that? What kind of thank you is that? Well, what else? Well, my son, one of his mighty men was hurt. A lion was one of his mighty men. Let me tell you this, friends. A lot of those mighty men got inspired to join the army because they heard the story of a 17-year-old giant killer. A little boy who took some stones in a sling and killed a giant who'd been intimidating the nation for six weeks and said, let's have your champion fight me. Send me out, somebody. And then David comes out. He says, is this it? Is this the best you can do, Israel? Send me this little pipsqueak. I want to feed his flesh to the birds. And David went, well, today, friend, I'm going to kill you with the help of my God. And your body is on the menu, not mine. When people heard that story of the courage and power of this kid who said, well, I did it because I had a bit of practice, right? I killed a bear, killed a lion. You killed a bear. He said, I grabbed the bear and smote him. Have you ever seen a bear? There's no way I'm going to go to a bear, grab it by the face and go, get away from me. Put my sheep down. No way. If a lion came out to eat the lambs I'm looking after, I'm going to go, do you want ketchup with that? You can have. It's all on on me. I'm I'm not going to mess with a lion. David said, That's what I did. He had been learning how to be courageous in complete obscurity when no one knew who David was. Nobody even knew where he was, what he was doing. David was learning how to sing songs to God and take care of the little responsibilities he had been given. One day he was going to be promoted to be king and to kill giants. When other young men heard that story, they went, count me in. I want to be one of his mighty men. What do you now say to Eliam? Who says, Dad, you're an advisor. The king seduced my daughter. What am I going to do? My hero let me down. I looked up to him. I was enamored by him. I was inspired by the story. My heart is broken because of what he did. Heatherful looked at him and went... How could David hurt my family like this? Look at Bathsheba. She's my granddaughter. Now, the scriptures don't say she was raped. She went in and she did whatever the king asked her to do. But, you know, here's a couple of things about David. Number one, it's the king. No one can say, I'm not coming to see the king. (laughs) And number two, the Bible says that David had very beautiful eyes. He was a good-looking, sharp-looking guy. He was powerful, had money and influence. And she... And without the comforting arms of her husband, the bath she was taking was a ritual bath at the end of her cycle. So she hadn't been in touch with her husband. She wasn't pregnant. She didn't have any intimacy with him. So she went into David's arms. It's amazing what a good-looking, powerful man can do to a vulnerable woman. It's incredible. And so that's what happened. He said, I, I, I really hate David for what he did to Bathsheba. I hate it. 
And then her husband, Uriah the Hittite. His name means the Lord is my light, which tells you he didn't just come and serve the king of Israel. He now was a servant of the God of Israel. Here's a guy coming from a pagan Hittite background. The Hittites were the kind of people that would put their children in earthen vessels and put them on an altar and burn their children to a God called Moloch. To be brought out of a pagan background like that to serve God is a wonderful testimony. And David knew he had done wrong to do that. And so did Ahithophel. How could you do that? How could you take his life? Now you know why Ahithophel said, I want a sex scandal in David's family and a murder in David's family because that's what he put in mine. Whatever he did to me, I want him to get exactly the same, man. Then he'll know how I feel. To add insult to injury, there was a little life, the first child born to Bathsheba who died. And Ahithophel said, here's a picture of the generations and that little face will never be in the frame because of what David did. I hate that guy. And I don't think I could ever be reconciled to him. That's why he said to Absalom, let's do something that will, that will be beyond reconciliation. Friends, how do you handle your offense? I, I, I tell you, every church I go in, there's somebody got a story to tell me. But pastor, you know something? What they said to me here. You know what people have said? I nearly left this church, you know. I was so hurt. My God. They ought to be grateful that I stayed. Look, you may well have been hurt. I get it. But church isn't about people who are perfect. It's about people who are forgiven. Right? You're going to find people up in here who work your last nerve. They say the most dumbest things. They do. From the pulpit to the pew. There's going to be opportunity to get upset and choose somebody else. Come on. Doesn't that happen to you? Don't look at me so holy. You know you're lying. It's happened to you, man. Let's, let's just, we're family this morning. Let's talk honestly. This stuff happens. If you don't know how to handle an offense, it's a problem. Look, Proverbs 17 verse 9 says, He who covers offense promotes love. Chapter 18, verse 19 in Proverbs. An offended brother is more unyielding than a fortified city. That's a city under lockdown. It's in, under siege. And he says this city is so locked up because this is what happens to a city under siege. Nothing can get in, but nothing can get out. And when you're locked into your offense and your pain and your bitterness, it's like people are trying to talk to you and it's just going over your head. Nothing's going in. But the real danger is you've got gift, ability, and capacity that could be blessing people, but you're so bent out of shape by how angry and upset and frustrated and bitter you are that you can't help nobody. Nothing can get out of you. Are we going to change this nonsense or not? I came to KT to help you. It's time to let it go. It's time to shake it off. It's time to grow up. Let's move on. I think the future for KT could be remarkable. If God opens that oasis again, my God. But he can't do it with twisted, bitter, angry people. Come on, friends. Whatever it is, get over it. Don't be an unyielding, fortified city. Proverbs 20 verse 22 says, Do not say, I will pay you back for this wrong. But wait for the Lord and he will defend you 
and deliver you. Chapter 24, verse 29. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay that man back for what he did. The scriptures say, don't go there. Because it only leads to you hanging yourself. If you hold on to that bitterness, you end up like Ahithophel who had the life choked out of him. That doesn't have to be you. Your visit to this building this morning could save your life. You say, oh, Pastor, you don't know how tough this is. You weren't there when they said this. You weren't there when I No, I don't need to be there. I read my Bible. It says 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tested, tempted, or tried beyond what you are able to endure. He won't. Which means every test that you face, every point of offense, every difficult moment has come to tell you something about you. And it's telling you this. If God's allowed me to cross your path, it's because he knows you have the capacity to handle me properly. Your temptations, your tests, your darkest moments are actually your friends because they are helping to define your understanding of where you have ability. God will never let you be tested beyond what you are able to. You know, the person was ugly to me. That means in the capacity of your love means I can forgive such ugliness. If I couldn't, God wouldn't have let this happen to me. But he's let it happen to me because he knows I could do it. I could handle it. That's why the book of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no root of bitterness grows up and causes trouble and and defiles many. Don't let it grow. You can handle it. God says, with my grace, you can deal with this situation. I know it's painful. I know it's ugly. But you can deal with it. You have a savior who looks down from the cross and says, Father, forgive them. He finds the capacity to forgive people who are hurting him more than you know. What a savior we have. And Jesus says, I want you to live that way. I want you to live that way. Oh, my God. And it's a beautiful thing when you see people who find that kind of grace to live that way. Let me tell you two stories before we close. There was uh, a man by the name of Kreslo Godlewski in 1946. He was a member of a gang, as a vicious gang, and they were young people, but they roamed the countryside in Germany and they were ransacking it. Wherever they went, they just caused mayhem, difficulty. And on an isolated farm that was owned by a man called Wilhelm Hammerman, they went in, broke in, and they, ten in that family, they killed nine of them. The only survivor was Wilhelm Hammerman. He survived his four bullet wounds. And they caught, eventually caught Godlewski and the gang. He had to do time in prison. And when it came for him to be released for prison, the authorities said, we can't release him because he's got no address to go to. So he'll have to stay in jail. He's got no place to go. Wilhelm Hammerman heard that and said to the court, can you release him into my care and custody? The guy who's just killed your family members. He can come home. Can you imagine that? So they released him. Because Wilhelm Hammerman said, I must remember that Christ Jesus died to forgive me. Therefore, I must forgive other people. 
He's now having breakfast with the man who massacred his entire family. You shot all my daughters and all my sons. You killed my wife. But here's breakfast. In the name of Jesus. Come on, man. Come on, that's Christian life, man. If you don't understand that, then you're not really a Christian. You've got to climb over your offense and do differently. One more story from the courts of South Africa during the dismantling of apartheid. They had things called the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. And in those sessions, if you were a perpetrator of a crime, you had to tell the crowd what your crime was. And it would be in the presence of anybody that was a victim for your behavior. And in one story, a frail old lady rose slowly to her feet. She was about 70 and her years were etched on her face. Been through a lot, this lady. But facing her in that session, across the room, were several white security police officers. One of them was named Mr. Van de Broek. He'd been found guilty of murdering the woman's son and her husband. The man had come to the woman's house a number of years earlier, taken her son, shot him at point-blank range, burned his body while, she, while he and some of the other officers reveled in that act and laughed about it. Several years later, Van der Broek returned to take away her husband as well. And for two years, she didn't know where he was. And then Van der Broek and a group of soldiers came to her house and they took her out to a place by the river. And there she saw her husband who was bound and he was beaten, horribly beaten. He was lying on a pile of wood and the last words she ever heard her husband say were these, as the officers were pouring gasoline on his body. She heard her husband say, Father, forgive them. But justice caught up with them and uh, in this commission, Van der Broek had been found guilty. And now it was time to determine his sentence. So as the woman stood, the presiding officer of the court asked, so what do you want? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? And in reply, the woman said, I want three things. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. She paused and then continued, my husband and son were my only family. I want secondly, therefore, for Mr. Vanderbroek to become my son. I would like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can pour out on him whatever love I still have within me. And finally, she said, I want a third thing. I would like Mr. Vanderbroek to know that I offer him my forgiveness because Jesus Christ died to forgive. This was also the wish of my husband. And so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the room so I can take Mr. Vanderbroek in my arms, embrace him and let him know that he is truly forgiven. And as the court assistants led the elderly woman across the courtroom, Mr. Vanderbroek was overwhelmed by what he heard. He collapsed and fainted. And then he quietly listened to those who across that courtroom had been victims of similar abuse and oppression. They began to sing Amazing Grace, how sweet sound that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found, I was blind, but now I see. See, when Ahithophel is in his room raging about David, David is in another room now, repenting and writing Psalm 51. Forgive me, purge me with hyssop. Who's got the problem now? 
the one who's repenting or the one who's raging. If you hold on to that offense, it's going to destroy you. It's going to hang you. Listen, you will be offended. No question about it. It's just a matter of time. If it hasn't happened yet, it will. And then you'll have an opportunity to choose your response. On the basis of today's message, I urge you, I implore you to choose wisely. And if you do, God's promises, I'll deliver you and I'll vindicate you, I'll help you. But choose wisely. Keep whatever wound you've received clean and believe me, there's life beyond it. I, my time has gone. If I had the time and the inclination, I'd pull up my sleeve and show you two little marks on my arm. It's like a little butterfly because I rolled over broken glass one day as a kid playing with my friends. I didn't even know the glass was so sharp. I didn't even know I'd been cut until I was going home and a neighbor saw me and screamed and I realized I'm covered in blood. That's when I felt the pain and screamed. But she'd got to go and have stitches. And in my mind, the only needles I'd seen have been the ones that people knit with. So I'm a little boy going to the hospital imagining they're going to have this big old needle going into my... I was shaking. I couldn't keep my legs from shaking. I just couldn't stop shaking. The doctor saw how bad it was. He said, listen, son, it's a very clean break. What I'm going to do, because you're frightened of needles, I'll tape it. And you must promise me that you keep this wound clean and we'll look at you in a couple of weeks' time and see how it's healing. You may not need to do the stitches. I was like, okay. When I heard that if I keep it clean, there's a chance for no needle, I have never kept a piece of my body so clean in my life. And when I got back there, he said, no, it's fine. I didn't have, I didn't have stitches. And I'm not disabled because there's life beyond the pain and life beyond the wound if you keep it clean. So if you've been wounded in church, in your marriage, in your family, your place of work, keep it free from, clean from bitterness, rancor, hatred, revenge, frustration, ugly behavior. Because if you keep it clean, there's life beyond it. It will heal and you have future. If you don't handle it well, it might choke the life out. Say this mountain can be burned. They say these chains won't ever break. But they don't know you like we do. There is power in your name. All together. We've heard that this is.
Break the 